Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Corruption. It's something that happens in tin pot dictatorships. Amongst oligarchs scrambling for power in post-communist states. Not in the democratic mother of all parliaments, right? But corruption, dishonest conduct for personal gain, is creeping into the crevices of Westminster's chambers. Most of us are no longer shocked to hear of a Conservative Party politician using their position to benefit their own businesses. Like Baroness Michelle Moan, who financially benefited from the £200 million in government contracts awarded to PPE MedPro a company her husband chaired during the pandemic. This week, investigative journalist Peter Gagan revealed that Rishi Sunak's wife, part owns an IT firm, set to land tens of millions of pounds in government contracts. I sat down with him to discuss his findings and what they mean for government integrity. Enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the politics show. Cast. Peter, hello. Hello, Ollie. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Welcome to Joe Towers, the new Joe Towers, compared to the old one. I think. Did we have you in the last one? I can't remember. You knew where you knew where we were, but you, maybe maybe you didn't come. Anyway, here we are. Welcome. Thank you very much. Um, before we get into the meat and drink of this, won't you? Tell our viewers who you are and what you do. My name is Peter Gagan. I'm an investigative journalist. I wrote the book um, Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, and I run a substack called Democracy for Sale. And on that substack in the last week, you've had a, I would describe it as a banging story, an interesting story um, about Infosys. Why don't you tell us that story? Yeah, so if your viewers don't know, Infosys are, they're a very big company. They're a massive Indian-based, they're based in Bangalore IT firm. They do work all over the world, 300,000 employees. And the founder just also happens to be Rishi Sunak's father-in-law. Mm. And uh, Rishi Sunak's wife um, owns, doesn't sound like much, 0.94% of Infosys, which sounds to you and me like, what's 0.94% amongst friends? Pocket change, Peter. Pocket changes, but it's also 39 million shares. And at the moment, they're worth about 600 billion pounds, give or take a little bit. 
it. So it gives you some size, some idea about 600 million pounds. It gives you some idea of the size of, of Infosys. Um, and it's, they're an interesting company. They've, you know, they've increasingly started doing much more work, public work in, in Britain. They do a lot of public work around the world. They're one of these companies, when you're talking about these big, huge kind of IT companies, the big thing they're often looking for is government contracts. Because government contracts are good, they're dependable, they're reliable, they often pay well. And when you get more government contracts, your share price goes up, so everybody wins. And if you're a shareholder, like Richard Sunak's wife, that's good news. Um, aside, she actually received over 13 million pounds last year in dividends from Infosys. So, you know, there's good money in it. Mm. Um, and I realized, and I was doing some digging, and I noticed that Infosys have actually just been put on two major government contracts. One from the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, and the other to, to do with the NHS. And between them, these contracts are worth over £750 million. And these are what are called framework agreements. So what had happened is Infosys would have been approved to be on them. There's no guarantee of any contracts. Nothing had been signed. But the chances are you'll be ending up with some pretty good, big public contracts down the line. And it's kind of of a piece. Infosys have been getting more and more British government contracts in the last few years. They've had about 65 million all told in the last 10 years, but about 47 million of those since 2020 when Rishi Sunak became the chancellor. And, you know, I'm not suggesting they're getting contracts just because Rishi Sunak is the chancellor. But I think it's it's an interesting thing to note. And that's, yeah, that was my story. I was looking into this and kind of kind of just seeing where, where the money's coming from for this kind of thing. It's really important, isn't it, Peter, to note Nothing illegal, as far as we're aware anyway, uh, is going on here. No, nothing illegal. No, this is, these are, in some ways, you could say these are standard tendering processes. This is how public procurement works. And the interesting thing, I think, is actually, if you're looking at the progression of the company, the company has gone from getting one-off contracts or being on smaller frameworks. These are by far the biggest frameworks they've ever been on. And I think that's part, in some ways, that's the interesting thing. And it does reflect that this company wants to do more business in the UK. And why shouldn't they? They're a big global company. But of course, given the nature of it, uh, given the nature of the connections between Rishi Sunak and this company, it is interesting. And Actually, the uh, ethics advisor in Parliament ruled last year that Rishi Sunak doesn't have to declare his wife's interest in, a, in, a, in, in Infosys in the register of interests. And we all know it's there, but I think there's something about that where you go, well, actually, shouldn't we be declaring these things? If this was a company, if you were on the board of a company, and probably even you and I were working for a company, these are the kind of things we would have to declare. Not as live conflict of interests, per se, but as potential contracts of interest. Mm. So they can be managed better. And I think it says something about how we manage these things in Britain, that this doesn't even have to be declared. There's an interesting thing, right, because I, something that Sunak will, Rishi Sunak will often say, essentially that, you know, his, his funds are in a blind trust, you know, so it can't possibly sort of contaminate his political decision making. Um, I know that there was a a bit of a scandal, a bit of a hoo-ha around, again, his wife and a uh, childcare company uh, off the back of the childcare announcement that the Conservative government made. And I kind of... Is it fair to sort of to, to, to say, right, Rishi Sunak, his wife, you know, man and wife, their financial interests are actually connected to each other, so she is deserving of a level of scrutiny as the Prime Minister's wife... Or, or do we should we be looking at it as she's an individual person? I, 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 I sort of get a little bit sensitive about it, whether or not there's sort of like a, I don't want to say it's like sexist to be like, well, you know, she is his wife, so her financial interests are relevant, or we should be treating them and sort of breaking them off from one another. I don't know sort of what your stance is on that. I think it's an interesting. I think it is. It's it's not as simple. I think it's you know. 
this is an individual in their own right. Their wealth is, is known, it is documented. Similarly, uh, Rishi Sunak, it's worth mentioning, he is the, the richest person ever to be the Prime Minister. And he has, a, you know, he has substantial wealth, and he's saying some of it's in a trust, and he earns quite a lot of dividends off that too. Mm. You know, uh, and p- pays a much lower level of tax on that because of their dividends than, than a PAYE worker. So you know, there is exceptions there too. But I think in the context of, and I think especially in the context where Britain is these days, and the roles in which we've seen kind of around, especially around public procurement and public contracting, I think there's a need for a much higher level of perception and transparency around these things. Mm. And that's why I do make that point about like Rishi Sunak not having to declare these interests. And I think it's, you know, their interests aren't conjoined, they are separate people, but they are in the same household. And it's, you know, it's the family actually, in many ways Infosys is actually Rishi Sunak's father-in-law, it's his, it's his mother-in-law, it's his relatives. It, it is in some ways a family business. They own, they own about 3% of the company now, mm. but that's worth about 2.5 billion. These are big numbers of money. They sound small, but they're big numbers. And in that context, I think you know, there's, there's, there's a need to be much to, to have a higher level of transparency. I think that we've had traditionally, and I think the contracting, some of the stuff we've seen around PPE and contracting scandals, I said, we're not saying anything illegal has happened here, but the opaqueness of how these mm. decisions are made the opaqueness of relations between people. We have unfortunately got quite a bad track record of this in the last few years, and I think that does make it important to place some scrutiny on what's happening. Well, you tried to FOI um, the government, didn't you, about a meeting between Infosys and a government minister. How did you get on with that? Yeah, so I noticed that Dominic Johnson, Lord Johnson, who just also happened to have been uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's former business partner and had been a, consi- a considerable donor to the Conservative Party before being put in the House of Lords and made a government minister. It's, a, well, you know, it's incredible how many hats people People can wear it to be so successful at so many things. <laughs> and he'd had a meeting with Infosys back in April, and I'd asked the government for uh, for simple things like a minute of this, minutes of this meeting and um, a readout. And I was told, you know, uh, frankly, no. We, they said, you know, there's, it, there's an interest in transparency, which we understand, but in this case, it's confidential information between a company, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And unfortunately, that's the case a lot of the time when you ask this government for information. Mm. That's happening more and more as well. You're seeing it's harder and harder to get information that I think has a genuine public interest. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Not another one? It's the Politics Show podcast. You can, you, it's almost a, um, something illicit probably isn't going on, quite possibly isn't going on. But when you shut down avenues of inquiry, when you do become less transparent, it can almost provoke that conspiracism, right? It can, and actually, it's a danger for governments that if they do become less transparent, open themselves up to less scrutiny, 
people that otherwise would, you know, if there was a valid explanation or, you know, literally just the minutes of the meeting, which knowing what minutes of meetings look like probably actually wouldn't be that revelatory anyway. You go, oh, well, well, there they are. But the fact that they won't release them, it means that people who are perhaps a little bit more minded to the conspiratorial all of a sudden go, well, 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 Peter, what is happening in that meeting? I think this is the problem. I think this government's got itself into this in, like this problem where they're just so resistant to anything that looks like transparency mm. on so many levels. I think it's a it's a it's a real constant problem. You know, minutes uh, FY we've never seen this the lowest level of FOI uh, rates we've ever seen in terms of response rates, and that has that has a knock on effect. As you say, people people are less trusting of government. They don't believe things the government say to them. They believe the government's not telling them the truth. And if there was a bit more transparency into these processes, you wouldn't. It, we, you, some people would always think that, but you, you wouldn't have the kind of blanket assumption. And the problem as well is that we've had a culture where the government has said one thing and actually the other thing, the opposite's been proved. And we saw that with the PPE contracting stories. Yep. And I was on that story very early from like kind of March, April 2020. And I couldn't believe it, you know, to, to uh, some of the things Michelle Moan said recently, Doug Barman and the Conservative Party. You know, I spent years and the government was just saying to me over and over again, there's nothing to see here, there's nothing to see here. And you get the same response from the Cabinet Office every time you went and said, but this person's a conservative donor and they're getting this contract. Nothing to see here. It's an emergency. Nothing to mm. see here. And now we know about the text message between ministers and civil servants and donors. We know about all of this stuff now, which in many ways, and I must say, it's actually much worse than I would have thought it was. That's what was going on. I would never have thought that level. I would never have thought there would have been a VIP lane mm. for political donors. No. You know, I, you know, I just, of course not. You wouldn't do that. And I think that's part of it too, the, the kind of sense in which instead of holding our hands up and going, okay, look, we've got, really got this wrong, we need to step back, we need to be more transparent, we've actually had the exact opposite. And I did a story recently about um, the fact that Rishi Sunak hasn't uh, appointed what's called an anti-corruption champion. So basically, it sounds, you know, it sounds like a, a kind of made-up job. We had government, Westminster is supposed to have an anti-corruption champion brought in about 20 years ago. The last sitting anti-corruption champion was a guy called John Penrose, was a Tory MP. He left when Boris Johnson refused to, uh, John, Boris Johnson broke the ministerial code over Partygate and refused to do an investigation because the only person who could sign off an investigation into a breach of the ministerial code is dot, 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 the Prime Minister. So that's how ethics works. And Rishi Sunak said, look, I want integrity. And his minister said, we're going to appoint a new anti-corruption champion. 15 months later, since he said that, there's nothing. Mm -hmm. There's nobody. Nothing has happened. And I actually sent again, I, because I'm the way I am, I wrote a story about this, and I sent in an FOI request saying, can I please have details of people you've spoken to? And I was like, told, no, we can't, I couldn't possibly give you that information because it would prejudice an ongoing process. And I'm like, what ongoing process? You refuse to say what you're doing. <laughs> like it's, There's a process, but we can't tell we can't, you We can't tell you anything is. about this process. Yeah. And I think it's someone like me who will ask those questions. It's incredibly frustrating. Mm. And there's a party going, well, why, you know, why can't you just <laughs> to, like, that's not a difficult thing to do, for example. You just appoint an anti-corruption champion. It's probably not going to make a huge amount of difference, but you've done it. Mm. And so the resistance to even doing simple things makes you very worried, especially an election coming up where the Conservative Party is raising records amount of funding, is trying to raise as much money as it possibly can. They've changed the, the electoral laws so they can spend more money than ever before. And we know the connection between donors and public procurement. That's a real that's a real issue that mm. we're not we're not seeing. Then um, you know we're not seeing the government. We have to ask the question: How much does the government actually believe in transparency and in in these sort of things? And it can have real world consequences, right? When you I don't know, to, it's, it might seem abstract to people, but if you look at something like um, 
the decreasing rate of the MMR, MMR, MMR vaccine, right, where you are going to be reliant on government health messaging in order to boost that back up again. If you've got a ton of people that no longer trust the government because they've been proven to lie about things, uh, some, sometimes things as trivial as, you know, whether or not they were getting pissed in Downing Street on a Friday night. Okay, so when it comes down to something as serious as the vaccination of children, they go, why on earth would I trust these people when they've lied to me about something as minor as that? So it does have real world consequences. I want to come on to the point about elections and the money in British politics momentarily, but to just put the case to you for the Sunaks, you know, um, the defenders may say, yes, Rishi Sunak and Akshat Amirthi are very, very well off. They may well be the richest couple to ever inhabit Downing Street, but they pay their taxes. They pay what they have to in this country, what they owe, and as a result, they are just... This is capitalism's divine bounty. It's enriching them and it's enriching our society. How do you answer that? Defense? I think, you know, well, it, the tax side of it is fascinating, just as an aside before I give you the full answer. You know, we had, um, actually, Marty was a non-dom. We know that. She now, so in which case you spend, you basically pay £30,000 a year and that's it. And then you can pay your taxes elsewhere. She now claims that she pays her full taxes in the UK. Uh, Rishi Sunak belatedly released his tax statement, which if you look at it, it was really interesting because it's not like a tax. It's not like, if, you know, I've, I've often put in, a, I put in self-assessment tax returns. They never look like Rishi, they don't look like Rishi Sunak's, not just in terms of the numbers. One day they look yeah. like that piece, but also, but also it wasn't actually what you send into HMRC. It was yeah. it was prepared by an accountant. It was it was prepared for publication rather than, so which was interesting. And if you look at it, most of the money he made uh, came from, from dividends. So he paid an effective tax rate of 22%. So there is that issue. Again, you know, frankly, again, we're gov- this is a government that has decided time and again not to tax wealth. Mm. We have a very low level, not just a corporation, tax, but um, our capital gains tax is really, really low. And so you're talking about, you know, 20%. So you can make money on shares sales that you, you can you tax it, whereas un, so unearned income is taxed really low in the UK, but earned income is taxed really high, you know, 40%, 45%. And so it's if, if you're wealthy, you can actually pay way less tax as a proportion of your income than if you are a portion of the, the funds that you have if you're not. So and that is a system that successive governments, but be it previous Labour governments, do have created. Um, but more generally, I think there is, like, I think there's a, I can see there's a squeamishness, I think, in Britain about asking about the private lives of politicians. Mm. That's not always a bad thing. I think that's not always a bad thing. But I think we do have to ask about, like, the representat- representativeness of our democracy in terms of wealth and the people who make decisions. Look at not just the Sunaks, look at landlords in Parliament. A much, much greater proportion of parliamentarians are landlords than the general population. Most people aren't landlords. A lot of people, a significant proportion of MPs are landlords. Mm. And you've, a challenge, you've an issue then when, when they're making legislation because they have a direct financial interest in this. And more generally as well, our rules are just not good enough. And I think that's why it's important for people like me to ask these questions or at least put this in the public domain. And as I say, I'm not saying anything illegal has gone here on here. I'm just putting it in the public domain. Um, because under the Commons rules, you only have to declare a shareholding if it's more than £70,000 or 15% of the company. £70,000 is quite a lot of money. And, decision, you know, and you can have multiple shareholdings in, a com- in different companies worth as you know, huge sums, you know, as much as you want, actually. But if it's, as long as it's not worth more than seventy thousand pounds, it doesn't have to be disclosed. Again, people are making decisions, are make, are voting on laws, that are potentially significant to their material interests. So there is at least a potential of a. Well, the problem is we don't even know if there's a conflict of interest because it's not declared. Mm-hmm. And I think that's my big point with this. Yeah. 
and and I guess one of the recurring themes, which let's talk about now in relation to that um, fundraising drive by the Conservative Party, is that actually in Britain, when you when you, particularly when you compare it to America, let's say, the amount of Particularly when you compare it to America, let's say, where the funds involved in order to influence politics quite often are in the hundreds of millions of dollars, right? In Britain, influence is relatively cheap. You know, £50,000 can get you cabinet, cabinet minister access, basically, at a Tory fundraiser. And I know, absolutely rightly, £50,000, £70,000, the sums you were just mentioning, right, are shareholdings. That is a lot of money. It's a lot of money for most people. But in terms of buying influence in a political system, it's value for money, isn't it? Well, it's remarkable. £50,000 will not just get you access to a cabinet minister at a fundraiser. For £50,000 a year, if you give it to the Conservative Party tomorrow, and I, and actually what you can do is actually you can give it to a shell company. You don't even give it yourself. <laughs> so we can set up a shell company on the internet now. It takes five minutes and we could give the money. And that gets you membership of a thing called the Leaders Group of Conservative Donors. So that invites you over the course of a year to go to four, at least four meetings with the Prime Minister and leading cabinet ministers, at which you get to chat to them freely. No minutes are taken, no notes are taken. We don't actually know who's there anymore. The, the Tory party used to publish this information because it had been a bit of a scandal with, during David Cameron's time, remember him, over this. Then they actually mysteriously stopped and scrubbed their uh, scrubbed the records. Uh, luckily, I do still have the, the records that were on the internet. You'd be surprised to find out. So I can say who was there up until about 2019. Mm. But they're gone now. So the, And exactly that. The access is incredibly cheap. And when I first started doing this work a few years ago, I thought, look, compared to America, these aren't as big a problems in America. In America, it's, it runs on money. And then I actually started to realize, no, it's in some ways a bigger problem because there's actually much less money and it's much cheaper. So you can buy access much more easily. And most people don't contribute to political parties. In America, there is a bit of a culture of philanthropic giving, even to, to politics. So there's a kind of, like there's there's still mega donors for sure who pollute the space. There's also smaller donors mm. too. In Britain, we actually don't really have that. We just have these mega donors. A small, but between them, the Labour Party, the Lib Dems, and the Tories, between the three of them, and actually individually each, more than fifty percent of their income comes from less than ten percent of their donors for each of those parties. So you can see the real influence you can have. We had the case where Robert Jenrick, the then uh, housing minister, and Richard Desmond, uh, where they sat beside, where Richard Desmond sat beside Robert Jenrick at a Tory fundraiser, and Robert Jenrick sub subsequently uh, changed a planning decision to do with a big development in the Isle of Dogs. Um, again, they all say there was nothing untoward with that, but the problem, I think, for a lot of people is the issue that what happened does, you know, that's concerning, and even if you say nothing happened that was, un that was untoward, it's still concerning. But also that that's how access works. You go to a fundraiser for a political party and that's this is how this is how decisions are taken. Mm. And I think that's the thing where like we have small amount there's a lot of chasing of the of money into politics. But at the same time actually we're seeing more and more money as well. We have that we have never seen actually as much money, but uh, the Conservative Party raised more than thir uh, 30 million pounds since the start of last year, labor about 2025. 20, it's going to ramp up more. The spending limits have now been increased. The government brought in changes. I wrote about it on my, on my Substack um, before the end of last year, pretty much at the dead of night, through statutory instruments, no need for legislation, which have massively increased the amount of money that you can spend at the election, but also the amount of money you can give anonymously. So we now it's now much more easy to give more money anonymously, anonymously. So you won't know who's giving the money and you won't know anything about it at all. And 
as we can tell from what we know about how money affects politics and how small amounts of money have affected political decisions, that's really concerning. I think one of the really interesting things for me as well is this, this growing trend of the donors actually jumping ship from the Tories and moving over to the Labour Party, which I think for me is a really clear example of they think that the Labour Party is going to win the next election. So they're donating to the Labour Party. And, and so you just have to go, oh, so what, what are they buying? What, what, what do you think it is that they're, why are they, make, why are they making that decision? It's clearly not political loyalty. It's clearly not because, you know, they're, they're well, they were diehard conservatives and now something about Keir Starmer's agenda appeals to a diehard, well, possibly, but, you know, that's not, it's probably not the case. It's more access to power, isn't it? And they're hedging their bets that they think that's going to be the next prime minister, that's going to be the next chancellor of the exchequer, and I want to be in the nest alongside them. Well, this is it. I was actually really struck. The Sunday Times brought out at the weekend uh, the tax list, the top 100 taxpayers. And I was, because I'm sad, I was just kind of running my eye through it. And so many of the names were so familiar to me as, as political donors. Mm. I couldn't, actually, I was like, wow, there's so many. And I think that, that to me is really interesting. What are the chances? In the same way I did an investigation a few years ago, I worked on an investigation that was about um, conservative donors in the House of Lords. And Every single Conservative donor, bar about one, I think, could become party treasurer. Once they gave three million pounds, they got a seat in the House of Lords. And you're like, the, the chances, and the chances of, the, it was the chances of that many donors getting seats in the House of Lords were, by, by chance, basically, randomly, in the same way that the seats in the House of Lords are supposed to be allocated, was the same as winning the lottery every week for 13 weeks in a row. Not bad odds. Not bad odds, yeah, exactly. Would you take them? You're going to go down to the shop every day? Yeah. And it's, that's it. There's a sense, and I think because we have had, and we've now seen it from what happened with, COVID, with the pandemic and COVID contracting. I think that really showed that relationship between donors and access and what can happen in a way that I think even for someone like me in the past was like, well, we don't really, you know, what's exactly happening here? We don't really know. Similar things happen in the Blair administration, etc. Mm. But I think there's a re the problem of money in politics um, and, the po the, and I, I can see Labour now are focusing more and more on getting in big donors, high value donors to try and outgun the Conservatives. I can see that. The big concern is that we know that this, the legislation doesn't work. Well, the, the new legislation was brought in, the Elections Act actually makes the situation worse. It's not hard to fix. All the things you need to do or fix are already there. They've all been recommended by select committees, by the actual commission, by other parliamentary bodies. It could be done. It's just who wants to do it. What a stirring place to leave things. Peter Gagan, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Um, where can people find your work? Where's the best place to get it? The best place to find me these days is actually on my Substack, the Democracy for Sale uh, Substack. You can sign up there. Perfect, Peter. Thanks Brilliant. So thank you very much for having me. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.